turn to Mark chapter 1. If you don't have, of course, a written Bible, you can use one on your phone. Pull that up, have that ready, because we're going to be looking at some scriptures here, especially uh, at the beginning of our time together today. Well, the last few weeks, we've dug into the preliminaries of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Mark calls it, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. And so what John Mark does in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, is he prepares us for the main course, the main course, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. My outline for the book is very simple. I've got two points, introduction, the beginnings of the gospel of Jesus Christ, body of the letter, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's been preparing us for the main course. Now we get to see Jesus initiating his gospel ministry and proclaiming the gospel uh, in and around Galilee. That's actually what's going to take place in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. We see that he's in Galilee. And the way Mark arranges the book, uh, Jesus will be in and around the Sea of Galilee the whole way through the middle of chapter 8. As a matter of fact, I want to do something with you in your Bible. I'm going to put a map behind me, maybe. Is the map somewhere? No map. Okay. You've got one in the back of your Bibles. You can use that. Uh, but I want, to, I want to do something with you. Look in your Bible at Mark 1.14, and we'll see some of these markers of geography. You know, one of the ways you can study the Bible is, uh, the Gospels, is if you've got a red print edition where it has the words of Jesus highlighted. You might just one time read through, of course, you could read through the red words, and you can learn a lot about Jesus and his theology, his purpose, his life, and so on. But another interesting thing to do is reading the black words because the black words are going to kind of help you see transitions that are occurring between stories and narratives. And if you look at verse 14, Mark 1, 14, says, Now after Jesus was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Okay, and so this ministry is going to be in Galilee and remain there uh, through chapter 8. Now go in your Bibles to chapter 8 and verse 27. Chapter 8, verse 27. All right, we're going to look at a few verses together near the middle to end of the gospel. But 827, there's a, there's a mark uh, in, there's a change in the geography uh, that Mark has here. Mark 827 says, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Okay, so if you can uh, imagine in your mind a map of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee being in the north, Caesarea Philippi has Jesus going up into the, the regions, some wilderness area, some extended area just above that. So he goes with his disciples there. Go to Matthew 9 and verse 30. We'll see another transition here, Matthew 9 and verse 30. So they were up in Caesarea Philippi ministering the gospel there, but then uh, Mark 9 verse 30 says, they went on from there and passed back through Galilee again. Okay, and so what Mark does is he has Jesus on the move here. Jesus was in Galilee for the first eight chapters. He goes up into Caesarea Philippi, but now he's passing down into Galilee. Look at Mark 10 and verse 1 with me in your Bible. It says, and he left there, Galilee region, and went to the region of Judea in the south, which is where Jerusalem's going to be. And then he goes beyond the Jordan River to the east, into a place called Perea. He goes out into the wilderness again. Much of Jesus' early ministries in the wilderness because he's so popular. 
when he goes into the cities and towns, he can't even really function well. And so he keeps being thrust out into the wilderness. So here he's on the move, going from Galilee in the north, coming down into Judea and then into Perea. If you look at your Bibles at verse 46 of the same chapter, Mark 10, 46, it says, and they came to Jericho. So then what Jesus does is he crosses back over the Jordan River and we won't take the time to look all of the, at all of this, but he goes to Jericho and he's beginning to make his way to Jerusalem. So John Mark writes this gospel as Jesus taking a, a large trip. He's pretty well stationary in the Sea of Galilee around those regions He goes up to Caesarea Philippi, he comes down into Judea, and then he marches to Jerusalem, which is where, of course, Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion are going to occur. So the point I want to make with you this morning is Jesus' early ministry in chapters 1 through 8 all occurs in the region around the Sea of Galilee. Okay, now go back to Mark chapter 1. As Mark traces... Jesus' early ministry in Galilee, one thing rises to the surface. There's one subject or topic that Mark wants to develop with the reader, and that is Jesus' unrivaled authority in the region of Galilee. As a matter of fact, Mark's gospel mentions Jesus's authority several times in the first three chapters. Look in your Bible at chapter one, and I want you to look with me at verse 22. It says, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who has had authority and not as the scribes. So one of the things Mark is establishing here early on is that Jesus has unrivaled authority. As a matter of fact, That same word is used in verse 27 at the end of this narrative. Look at chapter 1 and verse 27. It says, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with what? With authority. See, Mark is repeating a concept for emphasis. He wants to establish something very important about Jesus Christ, Son of God, and that is that Jesus has unrivaled authority in the province of Galilee. Matter of fact, go in your Bibles to chapter two and verse 10. Hopefully you don't have to turn a page, maybe just one page in your Bible, go to chapter two and verse 10. Jesus heals a man and instead of saying, you know, something like rise, take up your bed and walk or, or be healed, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. That leads to a controversy and in verse 10, Jesus explains why he's done this. He says, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. I mean, Jesus is describing, or Mark is describing the authority of Jesus, and even this healing is used to demonstrate that authority. In chapter 3, verse 15, the word is used one more time in the first three chapters. I mean, it's found four times in the first three chapters, only rarely afterwards. When in chapter 3, verse 15, he sends out the disciples, and he says, and and, uh, verse 14, and he appointed 12 so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So we learned that this son of God, Jesus Christ, not only has unrivaled authority, he's able to delegate it to the disciples to give them authority 
over unclean spirits. And so I want to suggest that the mention of authority repeatedly in word and in concept is like a clamp that holds all of chapters one through three together, holds all of these chapters together. This word, when it is used, authority, it means absolute power or ability. When it's used later in the New Testament, it is used of the power or the authority that was exercised by different rulers or leaders in the land. So as Mark starts his gospel, he wants to emphasize Jesus' absolute power and authority as a ruler or a master. Now, this message that we're going to proclaim in chapters 1 through 3, we're going to take our time working through this message, is something that will not strike our culture very well. Okay? Our culture, the culture in which we live in, seems to reject authority, is quite skeptical, and recoils any time a leader makes demands of his followers. You ever feel that in our culture? Now, I think there are several factors for why our culture is trending that way, okay? Um, I'm not an expert in culture, but I think one of the, one of the, the factors would be dep- depravity. Okay? We don't like submission. We haven't ever since the fall in the garden. So we don't like authority. We don't like submission. We don't like someone else telling us what to do. I think uh, our culture also trends this way because of many immoral leaders who have, who have led in the past, who have abused authority. And so, you know, we, we, we be, be become skeptical or questioning all of that. And I think one of the reasons our culture does this as well is we reject the concept of truth, of absolute truth. But I want to suggest that this is not only affected the way we see leaders in our culture, this has affected the way some Christians see Jesus. We imagine Jesus then as being a very sensitive person, which he was sensitive in, in many ways, but especially sensitive with any claims to authority. So in our minds, in our culture, we imagine Jesus arriving on the scene and saying something like this, well, I don't want to step on any toes or anything, but I just may be the son of God. This may be the son of God. Men and women, it's not like Jesus got a round table, put the 12 disciples around it, and said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to lead together as a team. We're going to do this together. We'll be equals together, co-equal. No, Jesus led them. And Mark is going to demonstrate Jesus' exercising of authority throughout all of chapters 1 through 3. And so we have softened Jesus, but Mark will help us. Okay, and so the way I see it then, Mark establishes Jesus' unrivaled authority on the basis of 11 unique demonstrations of his power. You say, you know what, Jesus has absolute power as a son of God. You should line up behind him and follow him. Here are 11 reasons why. Now, this morning, we're only going to look at two of them, so don't get nervous, not 11-point sermon. Two of them in verses 14 through 20. 14 through 20. And so, uh, the first one comes in verses 14 and 15, where Jesus declares his own authority by announcing the kingdom of God 
and demanding a response. So look down in your Bible, verse 14. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As really, I believe, a summary of Jesus' preaching in the regions around the Sea of Galilee. Mark captures the core content or a summary of Jesus' message. John the Baptist has been arrested since the time he baptized Jesus. Uh, He's just about ready to be martyred. He'll actually be martyred by Herod a few chapters later in this book. So John has passed off the scene, and it's, it's now the perfect time for the Son of God to begin his public ministry. And his message that is summarized here is quite interesting. I would summarize it in three ways in verse 14. Jesus first was proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, the word proclaiming is the same word that was used of what John was doing earlier as the forerunner of Jesus. John was proclaiming different things. John was preaching different things like that the Israelites should repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. You remember that? But so Mark uses this gospel, I believe, to declare that Really, the primary or crucial part of both people's ministry, John the Baptist and Jesus, was preaching. Preaching the gospel of God. Here, the word gospel of God can be, can be translated the good news about or from God, or perhaps both. It's both about God and from him. But then as you continue reading in verse 15, I think he tells you a little bit more of the good news from God that Jesus was preaching in the regions around Galilee when he says in the, in, in the next verse that this good news was Jesus, that Jesus was proclaiming was that the time is fulfilled. You see that in your Bible? The time is fulfilled. As we get into verse 15, we get into some difficult phrases and concepts. The time is fulfilled, I believe, speaks of the decisive moment for the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. So Jesus is announcing to the people around the Sea of Galilee is the time, the decisive time has come for you to start experiencing fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And one of the things you need to understand here, and you just understand it quickly, is that there had been a dearth of prophecy, prophetic utterances, and prophetic fulfillments in Israel for about 400 years. It had been over 400 years since they heard from their last prophet, and so Jesus arriving on the scene, announcing to Galilee that the time for fulfillment has arrived was a very powerful message. He says, now was the time for fulfillment to be realized. But Jesus then further clarified that the time was fulfilled and that God's kingdom is at hand. And I want to suggest, you know, if the time is fulfilled is a hard phrase, this one's like even harder. God's kingdom is at hand. Now, in order to understand this little phrase, I want to ask just a few questions. I want you to think about this for a moment. First of all, I think it would be good for us to ask, of what kingdom is Jesus speaking of here? He says God's kingdom, but can we make any more sense of this. And I I just want to warn you that you're on the the brink of a huge theological topic. 
the kingdom of God. It, although it's, it's, it's very important, it's, it's also very difficult. Now, I've taught on the kingdom of God for years. I really enjoy talking about the kingdom of God. I, in some ways, I've, I've desired to write a book on this in the future. I don't know that I would ever do that, primarily for two reasons. One would be no one would ever buy it. And the second reason is anyone who ever gets it would never agree with me. Okay, because this subject is a very uh, diverse subject. There are many different opinions here. If I were to tell the, the whole story of the Bible, I would trace it back to the kingdom. If I had an unbeliever and I had 30 minutes, I would, I would tell the story, the Bible. I'd go to the contents page in my Bible, and I'd just work through the Bible and how it fits together, and I'd say, it's a story of the kingdom of God being plundered by sin. The kingdom of God being rebuilt and restored by Jesus Christ and the kingdom restored to the Father eventually in the future. Well, in our passage, verse 15, Mark doesn't really tell us much about the kingdom <coughs> that Jesus was proclaiming. The kingdom in this passage has been interpreted in many, many different ways. But this text doesn't give us much about the nature of the kingdom. Simply put, I think what Jesus is saying or preaching is that the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament scriptures is at hand. Okay, and that phrase is one we need to understand as well. That one word in the original that's translated at hand. God's kingdom is at hand. When Jesus says that, he means that God's kingdom is nearer. Now, notice Jesus does not say God's kingdom is here, but he says that it's near. Its arrival could be soon. One scholar says it this way. He says, to say that that which was far away has come near is not to say that it's arrived, merely that its arrival is close. It's close. In other words, Jesus is saying the kingdom is near, not that it necessarily had arrived. Matter of fact, later on in the Gospels, we don't have time to go there, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Jesus tells the disciples that they should pray a certain way about the kingdom. They should pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus challenges the disciples to pray for God's kingdom to come. To earth. Later on, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 50, 15, and we just went through this not too long ago, that's why I mentioned it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse, verse 50 through 52, he explains that there needs to be a transformation that occurs to our bodies before we can inherit the kingdom of God. I think both of those texts would cause me to think that there's at least a part of God's kingdom that remains a future expectation for the children of God. Yet, to get into all of that is to get too distracted in this passage, for Jesus is announcing something. He's preaching something. He's preaching, the time is fulfilled, God's kingdom is near. And then he demands something. That's what he says right after this. He demands a twofold response to his preaching and teaching. One, you must repent, and two, you must believe. Believe in the gospel. I want to look at both of those. I think this two-part response is both negative and positive. 
First, Jesus says you must repent. This is a call to assess negatively the value of your own life and righteousness. Jesus, when he's preaching to these people around the Sea of Galilee, he calls them to change their minds regarding who they are, to turn from their sin to something else. So negatively view your own righteousness, repent, turn. And then he says, you must believe. The word believe here is a positive turning to trust in Christ. Um, The word believe could be translated belief. It could be translated faith or trust. I actually lean a little bit more towards trust because sometimes in America or in our modern English, we think of belief as being an intellectual thing. So I can have this intellectual thought or believe it, but not act on it. And I think that this word is more powerful than that. Jesus is saying, the time is fulfilled. God's kingdom is near. So turn from your sin and put your confidence in, notice what he says, in the good news, in the gospel. And this is the good news that he's proclaiming. They must believe what Jesus is saying. And so all throughout this book, Jesus will call for people to have faith, to believe, to take confidence in what he says. So Jesus does not just sit down and share a few good things with people that they might consider. You know, you got like a whole bunch of other like, you know, really wise guys saying like different things that you should consider and different, different rabbis and leaders and all of this. He doesn't say this is one to add to the mix. No, he says, he, he commands, he demands, you must repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus declares his own authority by announcing God's kingdom and demanding that people repent and believe what he's saying. That leads us into verses 16 through 18, and we can go quickly through this passage. But here, Jesus demonstrates his authority in another way as well. Verses 16 through 18, the second way Jesus demonstrates his own authority is by gathering disciples. Look down in your Bible at verse 16, and we'll read through the text. Verse 16, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and followed him. In verses 16 through 20, Mark gives us the call narratives of two groups of believers or brothers. Paul or Peter and Andrew and James and John. Verses 16 through 18 are about Peter and Andrew. Verses 19 and 20 are about James and John. And so as we look at Peter and Andrew here initially in the first few verses, we learn that uh, Jesus demands that they would come and follow him. Now, a few interesting things can be filled in from John's gospel. We won't take the time to turn over there, but in John's gospel, we learn a few things about Andrew. Andrew. We know that Andrew, previous to this, was 
a disciple of John the Baptist. John chapter one tells us that. Not only do we know that about Andrew, we also know from John one that Andrew introduces his brother Peter to Jesus. Okay, so those are some interesting details to have in the back of your mind because when Mark writes this story, he's not concerned with all the details of how they met. He's not concerned to tell us, I mean, I was wondering this week, you know, did Andrew actually see Jesus get baptized? I mean, he's a disciple of John the Baptist. He may have been there in the wilderness when Jesus came. He may have been able to observe the things and hear the things that John the Baptist said about Jesus. Was Andrew there? We don't know. All Mark is concerned to tell us in this text is to describe a narrative, a story, when Jesus arrives, when Peter and Andrew are fishing, and he challenges them to follow him so that he might make them fishers of men. Now, make no mistake about it. Again, Jesus is calling these disciples to come in line behind him and follow him as their master. Matter of fact, that little phrase, follow me, could be translated very literally with its three words in the original. It could be translated, come behind me. This is a very direct claim to authority that is unique. It's different than any other rabbi that we know of. The way this would normally work is rabbis, as masters or teachers, would have a following of students, of pupils, who would follow them. But the way it normally worked would be the pupils would come and ask for permission and make a case for why they would be good students of the rabbi. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus inverts this, and he goes and he finds disciples. He initiates the conversation and the demands. He says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. By Jesus coming to these men then and demanding that they follow him, Mark is emphasizing Jesus' absolute authority. So Jesus explains here that he'll turn these fishermen into fishers of men, and their response, I mean, if you want to demonstrate Jesus' authority again, their response is immediate. It's immediate. They, they leave their nets and they follow. But Jesus, of course, is not done calling disciples. He then, in verses 19 and 20, calls two other brothers, James and John's, John, the son of Zebedee. <coughs> James and John will form part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. Sometimes people will talk about, you know, the three disciples who are closest to Jesus, and that's true. It's interesting to me that in, in, in this gospel, four disciples have speaking parts, and they're the four mentioned right here. So James, this is the James who's going to be martyred, the first disciple to be martyred in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12. And John, this is John, who will become the beloved disciple, who will write the gospel of John, who will write the Johannine epistles, and when exiled on the island of Patmos, will write the book of Revelation. But at this time, what we see with James and John is they're standing in a boat with their father and their hired servants mending or restoring nets. Again, what I want to emphasize about verses 19 and 20, if you look down in there, is that both the call and the response are immediate. Jesus calls them 
and they leave their father and hired servants with the nets and they follow him. And they follow him. Okay, it's a very interesting little two verses, huh? Kind of leaves their dad just kind of there with the servants and they're mending the nets. And the way Mark tells the story, these two disciples, they could care less about the nets. They're now gonna follow Jesus. So uh, we've looked at verses 16 through 20 at what this text means. Okay, and that's a good question to always ask when you're going through a verse of scripture. What does this mean? And so here, Jesus calls two disciples. They respond immediately, or four disciples. They respond immediately and they follow him. That's what it means. But another good question for you to ask as you're studying the Bible is why? Why would Mark start with this? Why would he put this story here? Why does it take place in the narrative where it is? And I, I want to consider that with you for a moment as we close here. Why? Why have this narrative of two disciples or four disciples being called right after Jesus's authoritative authoritative proclamation of the nearness of God's kingdom. Well, it seems to me as I study this that Mark is helping his readers understand more of what it means for someone to respond positively to the message of Jesus Christ. Surely, for someone to obey Jesus's preaching, They must repent and believe the good news that he's proclaiming. That is real Christianity. Real Christianity is obeying the words of Jesus and responding the way that he says. But repenting and believing look like following Jesus. And so the disciples then illustrate, these four disciples illustrate a positive response to the call of Jesus is right as well. If, if verses 14 and 15 are real Christianity, verses 16 through 20 show you what real Christians look like. You follow? Real Christians understand that Jesus is the authoritative master. He's different than any other man. He's the God-man, and because of that, he is authoritative. He not only deserves worship, loyalty, and following, he demands it. He demands it. And so far from a picture of a softened Jesus who's laying out options who's simply telling people what might be. Mark explains that Jesus gives demands, and he calls. He demands that people would follow. But ultimately, we have seen the beginning of Mark's case for the authority of Christ. Jesus' absolute power as the Son of God to make demands and gather disciples. May I say this, Jesus still speaks with the same authority to anyone who would follow him. He is God's son. He demands, deserves, requires people to turn, to believe, to follow. And even if our culture questions, and refuses to submit. 
We, we must acknowledge Jesus' absolute authority over our lives, his absolute authority to make demands and to lead in ways that will draw us closer to the Lord. Perhaps this is not the way you view Jesus. Uh, this is the authority of the master. And as we continue to go throughout here, Mark will make that case more and more. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for being able to work through this text of Scripture. Lord, perhaps a primary application for us this morning is to just look at Jesus, to consider how Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, writes about him. where Jesus arrives on the scene in Galilee and preaches a message that will frighten its hearers. It will inspire them as well. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is near. So repent and believe in the gospel. See the authority of our Savior. We see it as well in in the way that he recruited his disciples. As a God-man, you give choices, you lay out options, you simply compelled them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. I pray that as we consider the authority of our blessed Savior this morning, we might rejoice in it we might willingly come behind it, come behind you and fall and declare that you, you own us, we serve you, our life is for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.